Andre Cronier is a co-founder of Phantom, a layer one blockchain, and also the founder of Yearn Finance, one of the first yield aggregators in DeFi. Andre is certainly a key figure in the DeFi space, who at times has been seen as a rock star and other times been criticized for his controversial takes. Before we get into it, let's first hear about Andre's backstory. How did he get into crypto in the first place and why did he decide to build in DeFi? I originally got into the space because I thought it was mostly scams. Um, and I wanted, the, the, the first thing I did was I started my, my code review blog, um, which was partially for me to learn the technology, but parallel to that, there wasn't, there wasn't anyone, this, this is now back 2017. So, so, you know, we're, we're talking, um, in the ICO phase and there were a lot of projects launching that were claiming to have solved certain problems or claiming to have resolved issues that have existed kind of in in big data and distributed technology for a very long time. Um, and these are young teams. They often didn't have any formal training. Um, so 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 what they were claiming was highly unlikely. So so what I started doing was just writing down my research as I was going through their GitHubs. So so I would ignore all of their marketing fluff and all of that stuff. And I'd go look at the code and I'd look at what are they actually building? What have they actually solved? How much is it actually aligned with what they're saying? Um, and 99% of the time it was it was lies, plain and simple. So, so I started very anti this industry. And I think even today, 99% of everything is garbage. Um, but there's a reason I've been here now for almost five years. And that's because that, that, that 1% is real. And it's, it's really real. Like every time I have to interact with any traditional system, whether it be banking, whether it be regulus, regulation, whether it be tax, I am, I am reminded of the luxuries and freedoms that we get by being blockchain natives, by being able to have custody of our own assets, by being able to, if I want to make a payment to someone, it is the simplest thing in the world to do. If I want to do cross-border international payments with banks, it's one of the most frustrating things to do. So, so, so there's, and, and I mean, that, that's a small example. I, that's, there's, there's a lot more happening and there's a lot more going to happen over the next few years. Um, a, a, another bit of a problem with the industry is, you know, the, the, the tokens move a lot faster than the underlying technology. So there's a disconnect between how quickly the market as a whole, which is predominantly financial and greed driven expects these things to move versus how long the tech moves. But anyway, I'm digressing. So I got into the space to call out these scams. Previous to that, you, your background was in, in, were you a developer? I mean, a software engineer? Or? Traditional finance. So before that, I was um, CTO of a DigiBank, um, Freedom Life. Um, we were developing insurance, banking, um, loan products, um, a bunch of different things. We were working with a lot of um, credit scoring models. I was building out some some big data um, pipelines, and even back then, I was doing some basic machine learning and neural net stuff. So, so I mean, this that's this is all backgrounds that I considered myself well equipped in, or as much as I could have been for someone that only had like ten to fifteen years experience. Um, but I came from a strong traditional finance background, not 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 on the trade trading side. That's that's not something we ever did, or or that I understood that I had to learn as I came into the space. So like I didn't know things like 
um, futures or options or you know trading as a whole. Like I didn't even understand the concept of of a spot trade. Um, so all of those things I needed to learn. But you know loans, um, credit scoring, risk analysis, um, standard savings account, those kinds of stuff. That was that was that was my pedigree before that. Um, and that I did for a solid, I think, almost 15 years. Um, and, and then I started getting into 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 this space because it was it was very it was it was parallel to what I was doing at that time. And and a lot of the struggles we were having at that time were things that crypto people had claimed to solve, which they didn't. And it still hasn't been solved. But but that that. That, as I say, that that was sort of the noise in the space. That that wasn't the actual value. The actual value is real, and it's the thing that has kept me here, and it's the thing that keeps me coming back. Um, the thing that chases me away is that ninety-nine percent. There's there's always a point where that noise becomes so high that you just can't tolerate it anymore, and you need a reset. Um, and luckily, the markets always reset, which is a good thing. Um, but so after after the, after the the, the code reviews, um, eventually I started doing that with a media company called Crypto Briefing, um, and we started formalizing that a little bit more and building a framework and a structure around it. Um, and then from there, I was approached by quite a few companies at that time to to either audit or to help them on their tech. Um, and one of those companies was Phantom. Um, and there's there's a long history there, but but it comes down to when when I got into it, um, they they had raised forty million dollars off of the back of an ICO with a bunch of technical claims that again weren't true, and they couldn't back it up, and they couldn't actually deliver it, and they didn't have the technical expertise. Um, I still semi regret back then actually getting involved, but the the. The the thing there was I was at that time actually planning a high scalability blockchain because I've learned a lot of stuff. I learned a lot of techniques on how to implement and how to improve and what you could do and what you couldn't do. And I just wanted to release a pure tech stack to show people how it works. So so now with Phantom, there was this opportunity where they had the money, but they didn't have the tech. I had the tech, but I didn't have money. I didn't think I needed money, but turns out you do need a lot of money to actually play in this space. Um, so, so I'm glad that aligned and um, started giving them my tech and then training up a team and hiring developers and doing everything you do when you start up a company like that. Um, so, so I just managed to skip that step and get us a little bit ahead of that. Um, layer one development is slow. It's very, very slow. And you, you, you can't move fast because there's a lot of risk with anything that happens on top of that. But as part of sort of, so, 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 so at this point I was kind of sitting at like a, a CEO, COO slash managing director kind of level at Phantom. Um, and one of the, 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 and the bear hit right at that time, that was 2018. And, and one of the biggest detriments at that time was treasury management, because that was a, um, something that they had managed externally to me. So by the time I got involved, um, they had kept the 40 million in ETH. So it had gone from 40 million down to something like 8 million. Um, so, so all of a sudden, you know, what, what, what would have been a, a five-year, 10-year runway ended up being a, a two-year at best, if we're lucky, runway. Um, so, so the first thing we did when I got involved there is I started cutting out any extra stuff and we started getting it lean so that we only had core devs and we could focus on that. Um, started building from there and we managed to then get that runway to about four to five years, which I was happy with. But it also showed that an important part that we have to get under control is the treasury management. 
So as part of the treasury management, I started looking a lot at, originally we were doing some basic market making stuff, but again, like I said, that, that wasn't a world I understood. Um, it worked at a small scale, but it didn't work at a big scale. So small arbitrage we were good at, large arbitrage couldn't figure that out, and it was too competitive of a market. So I started looking heavily into DeFi, and one of the things I started looking at was, okay, but how can we deploy this capital into, at that time, we had Compound, we had um, DeForce, we had... Um, BZX, I think was one of them. There, there, there were a few lending protocols that already existed back then. Um, but back then, the, the, the supply side was very small. So that meant that interest rates were, very, were highly volatile across all of these platforms. So one day, you'd have 8% at Compound. The next day, you'd have 12% at BZX. And then a week later, it jumped back to that one. So a lot of what I did was actually just moving around this capital between all of these different lending markets to try and chase the best yield. Um, after doing that for about two, three months, I got to the realization that there has to be a better way to do this. I'm a coder. Let me solve this with code. Um, and that's when I started teaching myself Solidity and started getting into smart contracts. And, and that's when I built the first building blocks for Yearn. Um, and Yearn was developed with the need of being able to, to manage that treasury. Um, Yearn obviously had its own story. Um, Yearn, Yearn's token launch actually ended up being, it started as a very tongue-in-cheek thing that I just wanted to do to kind of show people, hey, you don't need to raise money, you can actually build this stuff yourself. Um, it turned into something much bigger than I had envisioned. You mean Yearn became too large? Yeah, the, the, there was... There was too many people involved, there were too many um, developers, voices, systems, integrations, everything across the board. Um, so, but but, but I, I stepped away right after I launched the token. So, so that ended up being a little bit of a blessing because, I mean, the team that is there now is much more capable than I am. And, I mean, just to interject on, on the token launch, that became kind of the model for token launches, for many token launches after, right? The valueless token, letting the market decide what, what the price was, became this, this model for DeFi. Yeah, I, I, I think it saw a lot of usage after the fact. It had a lot of different people implementing similar models or tweaking the models or slightly. Um, the one thing I kind of regret is the pool two mechanism. So whereby you incentivize people to provide liquidity, because I think that's... Um, at the time, when when it was released, it was useful because there weren't any active markets and we didn't have exchange listings. And, and I, I, through Phantom, I'd spent a lot of time brokering exchange listings and it's, it's a horrible, horrible process. And I didn't want to go through it again. I didn't want to do it. I had no interest in it. Um, obviously, I had familiar, familiarity with stuff like Uniswap and Balancer at the time because I was investigating them for yield opportunities. Um, so it made sense to launch there and I was happy with how it launched. Um, subsequently, I think people ended up making it a lot more predatory um, and they started using those big APYs to attract sort of uninformed retail to go into those pools and then people just end up being exit liquidity. Um, so, so, you know, what, what it was supposed to be and what it ended up being, I think, are two very different things. Um, and and I, I, I think it's died down mostly, which I think is good. Um, I, I still think it is a good model for bootstrapping communities, but, but, but you can't do it today the way I did it, you know, two years ago. How would you do it today? Um, I, I think there are a few protocols that have done it well. Um, Gearbox, Inverse, um, 
there's just one or two others coiners one I'm, I'm trying to remember the name now um, but 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 there have been a few pro but 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 the the moral of the story is two things that I think is important thing number one is don't make your token transferable at the start have your create the DAO give them give some small subset of contributors multi-sig rights and let them be able to decide that they award tokens to people so that you have that initial engagement but but there's no active market yet because the problem is the second when you have the active market you you get the mercenaries and you get the traders and it's best to avoid them for as long as you possibly can um, you you want to build up your core community you want to build up your developers and you want to reward those people because they're the ones that deserve the reward Mercenary capital doesn't deserve the reward. They're not bringing anything to your project. Traders don't deserve the reward. They're not bringing anything to your project. So, so that's the one thing. And then the other thing that I've been sort of playing with, but, but greed-motivated traders are definitely not going to do this, is that even, even then, if you do want to have a liquid market, allow people to put in um, bids and asks, but... It's, it's on some kind of time delay. So, so, so what that means is, is I can't just go onto Uniswap and hit buy and I buy the token for some ETH. I, I register that I want to buy some and I register I want to spend one ETH. And then there's some configurable time, let's say one week. And after one week, that one ETH is converted into the token at whatever ratio it is at that point in time. And the same thing on the sell side. Because and, and at any point in that time period, you as person who put in the bid or the ask can cancel your, your situation. Because the reason why I think that's important is it avoids the, 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 the narrative chasers, it avoids the mercenary people, it avoids the, the quick pump and dump group to come in. Because those things end up doing a lot of damage to projects. Um, and, and, and they cause a lot of stress and, 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 and distress to the founders, to the contributors, to the community and all of these things because you, you, you end up shifting the narrative to what's happening in terms of the token price instead of what's actually happening in the system itself. Um, but, but, but I mean, this happens in traditional finance as well. You know, it's the same when you, you have a company that's doing great, they've got a great product, they're doing great revenue, they end up IPOing and all of a sudden everything starts being about the share price and the, and the shareholders and, and making sure they get dividend returns and you're no longer reinvesting all of that money to, to, you know, make the best product and you start cutting your staff because you have to have greater shareholder payouts and, and your, your whole game shifts. And, and the token game is very different than the product game. And unfortunately, I'd say 99% of projects in this space are all playing the token game. They're not playing the product game. Have any teams done tried this kind of delayed buying mechanism that you're describing? Not to, not that I am aware of, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if someone has played with it. I mean, there's there's so many different teams playing with different concepts and prototypes and these kinds of things. Um, but but I haven't specifically looked for it. Is this um, kind of a token versus product? Tension is that what uh, has kind of driven you out of DeFi at times? Um, I less 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 that and more. I I I think it's a lot more to do with the public nature of DeFi than the underlying technology. I'm still a strong um, proponent of the technology, even even when I did take my my public. Um, leaves, you know, it didn't stop me from coding in the background. It didn't stop me from working on primitives. So, so I also need to separate, you know, leaving publicly versus privately. And I always communicate with my teams that, you know, look, I'm not going anywhere, but like I can't handle the, the, the public barrage of noise. Um, and uh, that's partially my own fault. 
um, you know, I'm, I'm a lot better now. Like nowadays I don't read Twitter. Like I'll post something and then I close it and then I just don't let the information cycle like come back. And uh, the, the problem is you're, you're also conditioned sort of when, when you start social media, right? And, and you're, you're, you're a small builder. Then the people you interact with on, for example, Twitter, Discord, anywhere, Telegram, are your, are your core believers. You know, these are the people that support your technology, they support your idea, they support your, your fundamentals. And it's lovely interacting with them and it's lovely getting their feedback, even if they disagree with you, you know, because that's usually constructive and you can build something from it. But there's, there's this tipping point where, where, you're, where you're too famous. You know, obviously I'm not, but, but I mean, there's, there's just too many people and there's too much noise and there's too much criticism that, that, that you stop being able to filter out you know, what's, what's, what's real discourse with the intent of improving versus what is just someone trying to bait you into some kind of discussion for their own whatever reason they do it. Um, and, and that took me a long time to realize that, you know, there's, there is that tipping point where it stops being your core contributor and it just starts being noise. Um, and that's something I've definitely struggled with in the past. Now I'm good with it because, like I said, I just shut it down. I, I, I've, I've stopped caring about others' opinions, which, which sucks on the one side because those opinions helped me influence and improve a lot of my products. And now I definitely have more of an echo chamber, which, which I don't think is good, but it's, it's the current best option I have to continue to provide and deliver the vision that I have. Um, so, so I've kind of had to isolate myself. So it was, it was more the um, being a public figure, what you disliked and what kind of made you quit. Well, it, it's, a combination of, it's, it's a combination of being a public figure and then the space itself is very public. So, so, so what, what, you, you know, in, in, in traditional finance, if, if something happens behind the scenes, like, like at a bank or at an at a institution or at an insurer, um, it's not public in the whole world. Like everyone's not shouting and screaming about that. Um, you, you have opportunity to deal with it behind closed doors. You have opportunity to contact regulators privately and, you know, disclose what happened and discuss that. Um, and, and while, while, while I think that is bad, it has its perks because it, it gives you a little bit of breathing room to be able to deal with this stuff. A big problem about the hyper-public nature of blockchain is, you know, as soon as it happens on chain, everyone knows about it. And within five minutes, it's going to be on Twitter and there's going to be people posting about it. And, and you have to be so quickly reactive because if you don't immediately start attacking what, what, whatever the first person that tweeted about it said. Now, you, you hope that they're right. 90% of the time, they're not right. 90% of the time, they took a piece of data and they arrived at their own conclusion based on what they saw. And, and if you don't, if you're not immediately there to immediately attack that person and attack their claim to shut it down, it gets picked up everywhere. And, and then it, it reaches a certain point where you just can't do anything about it. I mean, there's, there's still rumors today out there about me that are, are uncategorically false and I've disproven multiple times and we've had articles on but a bunch of people still believe it because, you know, I wasn't there to like violently shout it down. So I realized the best thing to do is just not be there because weirdly enough, when you're there, but you don't respond in time, people assume that means something. If you're just not there, then they just assume you're not commenting and then it's fine. So it's actually been a lot easier to deal with it by just not being there. Um, so, so it's a combination of that public nature and that sort of that urgency with the highly public nature of these applications and these 
blockchains and everything. And then, you know, everything is financially incentivized. So all you need is someone that has a sufficient short position that wants to take some data and then create a narrative about something. And then, you know, you have that stress you need to deal with the whole time as well. And then if your token goes down a little bit, you have even your, uh, a, a subset of your community that are shouting and screaming, you need to do things. And it's, it's, it's just, there's, there's never really a win if you play on the public side. Like, like, like the, the, the way I approach it is you try and minimize the loss. You're never going to be able to get a gain. Um, and, you, and you need to just accept that. So, so that's, that's sort of, I'd say, the core combinations of why I took a very, maybe overly aggressive step back. Um, I, 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 what, what, what I regret in hindsight with, with my last departure was that I didn't write a blog article and just like explain it. Now, the reason why I didn't do a blog article, I just wanted to disappear quietly into the night. You know, that's why I just deleted my Twitter. I got off, I locked myself out of my medium. Um, and, and I was just going to leave it at that. But again, other people posted things and that caused responses and that went crazy again. And it would have probably been better if I just wrote a post, hey, I'm going away, these things are going to run in the background, they're being handed over to other teams, but I'm not going to be involved in them. Um, and the reason I didn't do that is because I knew if I were to post that, I would get attacked about, ah, oh, but I'm soft, or, you know, why am I being such a, insert some vulgar word, you know, and... Um, I, I, I need to, I don't know, like, like be tougher or blah, 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 you know. So, so it, it got to a point where it didn't really matter what I did, I would get attacked for it. So the easiest thing was just to not do anything. And even then I got attacked for it. So, you know, it just kind of proved my point. Um, but, you know, I've, I've learned a little bit, um, well, I've studied a little bit on handling like PR incidents and stuff better. So, so I think we're a little bit better now. Less is more, and um, one directional is also important. You know, just just use it like um, a broadcast channel. You you share stuff one way. You don't listen to the feedback back. You you create other avenues for that feedback. Anyway, sorry, that's 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 long-winded, but but that's kind of sort of the combination of factors. Looking for a stress-free crypto life in 2023? Go self-custodial with One Inch. The One Inch Wallet aims to be the single app you need to manage crypto. Your one-inch wallet will act as a safe box due to hardware wallet connection, become your ultimate coin storage when adding custom tokens, and offer full versatility thanks to multi-chain support. It's easy to use, secure, and self-custodial. Go ahead and try one-inch now. So it looks like now that you you know how to handle uh, the fact that you know you're a public figure and also the fact that when you're building in in DeFi and, and crypto, um, what you're building is super public. Uh, so all, all, all of the pressure that creates now that you you're dealing with it with it in, in this way where, you know, you're kind of like stepping back from Twitter, from Medium, just like like you said, using it as a broadcast channel, but not engaging so much in just like the, the daily chatter uh, with those tools. Uh, do you believe that okay you're 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 like here to stay like there no more kind of like uh rage quitting um <laughs> there there like, like like i mean obviously it's difficult to speak in absolutes um one 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 thing one thing that has every rage quit has helped is it has helped give me perspective it has helped allow me to to ease back a little bit because because another problem is when 
and and I mean, let I every time I rage quit, it's usually a bull market. And the reason that happens is because it's very difficult to fight narratives at that point in time. It's incredibly high frequency, so so it's it's hard to take a step back and breathe because you're constantly trying to keep up or fight narratives or protect IP or or, or whatever it is. Um, and and it's that combination of that incredible high frequency that 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 you know it's it's that where um, in 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 sports as well you know if you don't pause to let yourself breathe you end up strangling yourself because like you're not controlling your own pace um, and and the same thing happens here where you know you're you start running at other people's pace and then before you know it you pass out um, so so I I can't uncategorically say. When that happens again, I won't step back again. What what I can say is I'll probably have other people that are now in my network handle that from a PR perspective instead of me. Um, that I think is maybe the more important thing is that I've recognized when it is for me to address versus when it is for other people to address. Um, so, so, so that's really the only commitment I can give going forward is that I think it'll be probably be handled by, in this case, Phantom's PR agency instead of myself, um, which hopefully has a better effect. Um, but I, hopefully, you know, it, it, it doesn't happen again. But I mean, the, the nature of our industry, it's, it's a horrible Petri dish of, I mean, if you, if at, so, so, so it's, it's very, it's online for one, which, you know, whenever people are online and there can be keyboard warriors, it's a lot easier to, to say horrible, horrible things to other human beings. So that's already bad. I mean, if you look at online communities, um, Reddit and stuff, and you look at the comments there, you know, it's, it's, it's bad what the people write. Then you add that it's a predominantly anonymous online industry. Now, if you start looking at the anonymous forums, you know, Fortune, that kind of stuff, all of a sudden it's a lot worse what the people write. Now add in the fact that it's a financially incentivized anonymous online industry. So now you, you have a financial incentive to speak ill or speak well of someone. And then you add that it's, that it's, it's, it's a very competitive, it's almost a, a sports club-like industry where you, know, you have people that, like in soccer, they're so fanatic about their one team versus the other team. Now you have that financially incentivized anonymous online. I mean, it's, it's the perfect combination to attract the worst people. Um, and, and I think while that stays, you know, it's, it's always going to be difficult to preserve sanity. And, and I, I don't think the same people survive here. I, I think the same people very quickly realize they need to leave. And, and if I was a saner person, I would have definitely stuck with traditional finance, but, but I'm, I'm just broken enough that I want to, keep being here but but you have to be broken to be in this space there's no doubts about it <laughs> that's hilarious it is it is a really explosive cocktail and i guess we are all a little bit crazy if we like just you know if we, if we stick around crypto um so okay so and and you you've built you know you're in finance and and phantom um so what's going on right now with with phantom and and why did you think it was a, a new um Larry One blockchain is it was was needed with with so much competition in that space. Well, I mean, Phantom was 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 you know we we launched the mainnet back in 2018, 
Um, I mean, it's it's older than any of the the sort of fast layer ones you see today. Um, and and we had achieved those kinds of speed back then already. Um, what what we didn't have is we didn't have sort of the 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 marketing that a lot of these other teams have. And 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 we had a comparatively small war chest at the time. When we launched, we had between four million dollars left, I think. So that was not going to marketing. That was not going to sponsorship. That was not going to to attract people. And and at the time, a a little bit of a curse of being really early is that you you stumble around in the dark while you try and figure out where this fits you know so so we went down the the supply chain narrative we went down the the national blockchain cbdc narrative we went down so many different narratives trying to sort of find the fit because the, this this was all before DeFi really found a fit and at that time the only thing that really found a fit was launching icos which you know in itself isn't really a fit that it's it's a byproduct um, so, so we spend far too much time going down wrong verticals. Um, and, and that's why I think Phantom kind of disappeared for a while was because we were chasing a lot of these wrong verticals in terms of, of our limited resources at the time. Um, and then, you know, when, when, when DeFi sort of hit, then, then Phantom strengths started becoming a little bit more obvious. Because um, and 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 I'll I'll try not belabor these points too much, but you know Phantom was the first blockchain um, that has true finality. So what that means is all all other blockchains that existed at that time all used the longest chain rule. So you know when you do a deposit to an exchange, it tells you it needs to wait for ten block confirmations. Now the reason it does that is because if there's one block, then the chance exists that another um, validator or proof-of-work miner or whatever is going to propose a different block with, with the same solution. Because remember, all proof-of-work is it's just brute-forcing the password to, to that hash for the difficulty. So it is possible that multiple miners can propose blocks. So what that means is now you have two blocks. So now which one of these is the true block? Because they've both solved the puzzle. So what now needs to happen is now you wait until another block is formed on top of it. Now, if, if this one's two blocks and this one's one block, this becomes the longest chain. Now, the more blocks that form on top of that, which means other builders or miners in the network are building on top of these blocks, the more assured you can be that this is final. So it's probabilistic finality. But now, for argument's sake, and highly highly unlikely but you know let's say there's massive breakthroughs in quantum computing there's massive breakthroughs in ai and all of a sudden we manage to you know destroy most ciphers that exist in blockchain technology the 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 theoretical possibility exists that a machine of that capacity that is quantum computing and is ai enhanced and all of these things can propose a new longest bitcoin blockchain and that means every transaction that has ever occurred on the bitcoin blockchain is just going to be it's gone overnight. It's just no longer going to exist because it's going to be replaced by this new longest chain. So, so highly unlikely. I'm just using this as an example. I don't want anyone to quote that and you know cause panic. Um, so what what that means is all of these blockchain uses 
this probabilistic finality. And, and that's why you see they have to wait for 10 confirmations. What they're actually saying is they're waiting for 10 blocks to be built on top of the block that had your transaction in it, because then they can be assured it's not going to be rolled back. Because if it's rolled back, obviously they don't want to credit the deposit to you. Now, Phantom was the first one that had true finality. So what that means is due to the way the consensus work, it's not proof of stake, it's not proof of work. It is a, 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 a um, it's, it's based on a really old paper from the 1980s, CCK, um, Concurrent Knowledge Communication. Um, but it, it, it conceptually comes down to that, that once all of the network are aware of this transaction, then it's final. It can't be rolled back. So it, it's also one of the things that allows the phantom blockchain's overhead in terms of disk and storage and those things to be light because we don't need to keep every transaction from the Genesis transaction. Once, once it's final, we can truncate and just take the snapshot at that point in time. But, but that, for example, is great for developers because you don't have to build in all of this extra UX and complexity and code around needing to wait for 10 blocks before you do something. When you get that confirmation back, you can say, thumbs up, I'm happy. Um, the other thing is, you know, because this is all happening on the P2P protocol, we can do it a lot faster. There's no, it needs 10 minutes to be able to brute force this password. It, it just depends on how quickly it can propagate through the network. And if it's propagated through the network and it's finalized, it's done. So, I mean, that happens historically and on average sub-second. You know, our finality is between 700 to 900 milliseconds, which is, again, one of the fastest out there. Um, so, so there's a lot of... UX and UI improvements that people started seeing when, when DeFi started becoming really big. Now, now a, a big problem with that at the time, um, there were strong competitors. One very strong one is, for example, the BSC chain, which is Binance's chain, which at that time was a, a, a fork of um, Ethermint, which was the Cosmos ecosystems um, Ethereum compliant machine built on top of Cosmos um, consensus itself. Now, it was controlled by a limited set of validators, so it was not decentralized. It was not what I consider to be a blockchain, but it was capable of achieving the same kind of throughput. So now all of a sudden, Phantom doesn't look as impressive because you have this, you have this parallel system that's capable of achieving the same kind of UX and UI for the DAP developer and for the user that uses the DAP. So even though, you know, technologically, you still have a significantly superior blockchain on, on the phantom side, it, its differentiators don't matter so much because also people stopped caring so much about, you know, the extremes of decentralizations and the extreme of distributed systems. Everything was fueled by greed. Everything was fueled by finance, decentralized finance. So, so these things mattered less to people. Um, but that's fine. That's fine. Because what, what, what Phantom is now, and rather what we are moving towards now, is the nice thing about these last two years we, we, again, spent too much time focusing on other verticals. So, for example, we built a lot of dApps ourselves. Um, Phantom Finance, um, Fmint, um, uh, Arteon, the, the NFT exchange, obviously all of the stuff I built, Keeper, um, Yearn. And, and, and while that wasted a lot of time that, in hindsight, I wouldn't have done, it gave us a lot of insights about the frustration that DAP developers face and the problems that need to be solved. So now that we're equipped with that, those are the features we're focusing on the next 
iterational phantoms? How do we improve those experiences that we and other app developers faced? You know, and while everyone is focusing on layer twos and rollups and ZK and blah, 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 I mean, we're, we're the blockchains, high throughput blockchains, which there only really exists two, and that's at this point in time is Avalanche and Phantom. Um, they're not at capacity yet. They're, they're not even close to capacity yet. Uh, at current standards, we can get to 100 million transactions a day, which is already at Visa scale, and, and we're not there. I mean, most of the time, if you look at Phantom's mempool, there, there aren't transactions. Like We can handle a lot more. So what's important now is focusing on getting that perfect DAP developer experience because that'll allow a better user experience. And, and just to touch on a few points quickly, because um, I think I've belabored on this a little bit much, you know, um, gas monetization, for example, which allows the DAP developers to be rewarded from the gas that's spent on their contracts. So, so, so they have a more sustainable revenue stream than needing to do a token or needing to do an aggressive raise or needing to do any of kind of this stuff. Now, sure, it means they're not going to receive as much upfront capital but if they, if they build a strong system and it is high throughput, they'll end up making a lot more in the long run as their, as their financials grow instead of that lump sum up front, which just causes a lot of stress and pain. Um, another thing is gas subsidies. So anyone can, can approve a contract to be subsidized. And what that means is, is let's say I'm the DAP developer. I subsidize my contract, and I subsidize this with my gas monetization, so the fees I get from gas monetization. Now, this means that anyone that interacts with my contract doesn't need Phantom. They don't need the native token. The Phantom is subtracted from me because I'm providing the subsidy. But now, now this is a small change, but it's important because a big prohibitive to onboarding new users, especially if you know they're not crypto native, is you now first need to teach them you need to get the, the native gas token. You need to go probably buy it on exchange or something. And then you need to get it into your wallet. Now, you, all of a sudden, you don't need any of that stuff. You're just like, hey, install this wallet. You can start using my DAP, which is already a big improvement. And then you know, when you start looking at you know, like our implementation of account abstraction, which is not a relayer on top. It's a native integrated system, um, which all of a sudden means users don't need um, monomics, so they don't need to store private keys, none of that stuff. You know, they can just use their standard username and password, auth, they can use login with Google, whatever the hell they want, it doesn't matter. They can use fingerprint, face ID to, to, to link that to a wallet. And then they can use those standard mechanisms to access that wallet and have standard social recovery mechanisms to be able to, to get it back if something happens again. Um, so, so we're focusing a lot more on those experiences to, to refine the adapt developers' um, overall experience and then their end users' experience. So you're focused on, on DAP development experience so that they can build better uh, UX, better, uh, you know, more accessible applications. And where do you foresee those applications will be, like in one industry? Do, do you have a, like a vertical? Like do you want um, Phantom to be like a DeFi chain or is it kind of just agnostic, like whatever developers want to build? Um, do you have a view on that? Yeah, so, so historically we focused, I think, a little bit too much on the verticals. Um, even today, Phantom is kind of associated as a DeFi chain, which I don't like. Um, it makes sense, you know, because that's the current vertical. But but the, the chains themselves are agnostic. You know, it doesn't happen. It, again, you, you have to look, you have to compare it a little bit to sort of early internet. You know, when, when the first internet started, 
Um, you know, it was very static. It was very slow. It was very expensive. So the only thing that really made sense to build back then was financial primitives. You know, people started using it for stock clearance. They started using it for um, international trade settlement, that kind of stuff. Um, because that's the only thing that made financial sense when interacting with it cost as much as it did. You know, data was very expensive, the infrastructure you needed. You couldn't just have a computer, you needed a whole team to support that stuff. And that's kind of the same place where we're at right now with blockchains. So, so you know, it's, it's a little bit... It's a little bit chicken egg that, that you, we can't yet get those verticals until the technology is at the point where it's easy for those verticals to onboard. Um, exact same thing again with the internet. You know, as, as it became more accessible, as it became more widespread, as it became cheaper, as it became more affordable for the everyday person to have a computer in their house and then you know, to have a 56K dial-up modem, and then ISDN, and then ADSL, and then just kept improving, improving, improving. And, and today, people don't even think about, you know, the cost to access the internet anymore because it, you still pay data, you still need all of this infrastructure, but it's so easy and accessible that you don't realize. And and blockchain still needs to get there. We're not there yet. There's still a lot of improvements we can do. And when we get there, it starts unlocking the other verticals. So you know, for now, it's mostly finance primitives that make sense. But within within a year or two years. You know, hopefully we'll we'll see some gaming, and hopefully we'll see some social systems, and we'll see some new systems. But but everything you see on the internet today is replicatable in a decentralized world. With the the, the business models change, however, that's that's the important thing. But the applications can say the same. But I do hope we're also going to see new unique decentralized primitives that don't otherwise exist. Right now, unfortunately, I think blockchains mostly just flip the business model. And, and, and I think that's, that's not living up to its full potential. Can you expand on how the business models in blockchain-based applications are, are different from Web2? Yeah, well, well, uh, a main one is if you look at at what's 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 the primary motivator behind 90% of business models if, if you look at... at um, Existing web, web two. Let's call it web two. Um, if if you look at traditional, let's say a traditional news site, um, they attract readers. What do they do? They end up selling those readers' eyes to ad agencies. That's simplistic as that. So so it's their job to attract the users, and then when they get the users, they can sell the users' attention for profit. Um, we already started seeing that shift slightly with, with what is now the creator economy. So, you know, you have platforms like Twitch, YouTube, etc. that have real, and Twitter starting now as well, actually, that have realized that their users are the ones that attract, the users are the content creators. You know, it's no longer, I, we are a news company, we produce news. It's now anyone can produce news. Um, and for that reason, we share some of our revenue with them. And that's, you know, started a new thing. But what is that revenue? All that revenue is, is because that person created an article that the company could sell to a lot of agencies for advertising. That's still the, the business model. But now in, in Web3, what changes is that you no longer have that intermediary. So there's no longer the we sell it to the advertisers. It is now... I, this is my eyes, so you talk to me directly. Because a, a big thing that blockchains do is it just removes the intermediary. It removes the middleman. You know, it doesn't matter if that middleman is a bank, an insurer, a lender, an advertiser. It removes them out of the equation and says, here's the user, here's the product. You two talk directly. You don't need anyone else to, to broker this exchange. So that's the big business model flip that, that blockchain products offer. So, 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 you know, where if we look at YouTube right now, 
their 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 average I, I actually stand on a correction i don't know what these numbers are but to my knowledge if you're sort of an entry-level content creator they give you like a 30 percent revenue split and they take 70 percent now what's going to happen in in the decentralized world is that's going to flip around the the dap is most likely going to get 30 percent because the dap isn't the one that needs to go talk to the agency anymore the dap is just the platform to facilitate the communication it's the user that ends up talking directly to the agency so that's why they take the bigger piece of the pie and the dap takes a smaller piece of the pie because they have to do less work they they don't need to go and engage now obviously if they still go fetch the advertisers and all of that stuff then you're back to the same model but but that's not embracing the real power of that blockchain allows you to remove the intermediary. So, 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 so that's the big business model shift that, that I don't think we've seen yet, um, but I think will become stronger and stronger as time goes by. Uh, again, the, the technology is just not at, at that smooth, scalable point yet where it needs to be. MetaMask Learn is an educational platform designed to immerse you in the world of Web3, what it is, why it matters, and how to get started. You will learn core concepts in fresh and engaging lessons from the world's leading self-custodial wallet. MetaMask Learn is for you if you've been interested in Web3 but just don't know where to start, you've bought some crypto on an exchange but don't know what to do with it, you still don't understand Web3 principles because they've been too jargon heavy, and you want to know what the fuss about Web3 really is. Wanted to also get your, your thoughts on regulation. Um, I remember, uh, was it last year where, where you said that you wanted there to be more uh, regulation in, in crypto and, um, and you, you were kind of talking about how the, the kind of the, 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 the negative effects of it being so public and so on. Do you still feel that way and, um, and wanted to tie that with just like the, the most recent Uh, news uh, with the SEC, um, you know, uh, charging Kraken uh, for their uh, yeah. uh, uh, staking um, uh, service, and you know, th there's there's just been just like an in an increasing amount of uh, oversight, especially in the U.S. with crypto. Um, do you think that's kind of the the, the, the right direction uh, for this space, given kind of your 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 previous thoughts on it? So 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 I'll I'll comment on the SEC part. Um, second, because um, because the first the first thing I want to stress is the is the I, I I basically propose that there are two types of regulation that that we're going to see right right now they're mixed, but you have you have crypto regulation, which is let's say a body like the SEC comes in, and they say, okay, Bitcoin you are no longer allowed to transfer transactions above $5,000, for argument's sake. There's no, there's, there's no one or there's no single entity in the Bitcoin network that can facilitate that request. So instead, what will the SEC do? The SEC will go and look, hey, who are the, 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 core, the Bitcoin core developers? And then they'll start sending out subpoenas and requests to these guys and tell them, hey, you have to apply these rules or you're going to jail. Um, obviously, the SEC is not a criminal organization, so technically they can't do that. They can just fine, but but just just for the sake of the analogy, um, and and that just creates more and more stress for these developers who who actually can't do anything. A, a great example is is Uniswap. So 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 let's say now the SEC decides that 
that Uniswap V1 is an exchange that needs to be, be regulated and it has to apply by all of these rules. There, nothing Hayden and Moody and the team, they, they have no possibility to be able to modify anything or apply by any of that. So what's going to happen? The ACC is just going to subpoena them and tell them that you know, they're going to go to jail. And the more they say there's nothing we can do, the more the regulatory body is just going to think these guys are messing with them and eventually they're going to go to jail. And it's going to create so much friction that it's just going to push away any developers that end up living in those regions because you're, you're, not, going to be want, you're not going to want to be under their rule. So, so that's, that's a part of what we're seeing happening now. And that is a bad part because that is just going to create a lot of friction and it's going to pull back the industry a very long time. So that's regulating crypto, which I don't think can happen and I don't think it should happen. The other part is regulated crypto. So now what regulated crypto, what I mean by that is, is, is Kraken. Kraken, for example, is a registered real entity that operates normal business its business happens to intersect with crypto. So, so it has the option to apply for the necessary licenses, to comply to the necessary regulation, to do everything that needs to do because they have that amount of centralized control. Other great examples you know, include 3AC. They were a, a standard company that were just working on the intersection of crypto. They should have fallen under regulated crypto. FTX, again, that's a standard company that just happened to be at the intersection of crypto. They should have been a regulated crypto company. So, so there's, there's a difference between you know, trying to re regulate decentralized crypto versus trying to regulate centralized crypto. Um, and I think that differentiation is important. Now, now if, we, if we take that and we extrapolate that to the Kraken example, for example, um, if, if you read the SEC ruling, and I'm not a fan of the SEC, just to make that very, very clear, but if you read their ruling, they're not placing a ban on staking. They, they, play, they said that the way Kraken was offering their staking services was closer to a security offering than it was a staking service. So, you know, it's not like they're saying, hey, Ethereum staking is banned. Because I, I think they're reaching a point where they're starting to realize they can't ban that. And there's very little they can do about that. But if someone acts in their jurisdiction and is offering a service that doesn't necessarily abide by, by their, plainly speaking, bad rules, but rules nonetheless, then they will try and enforce that. So, 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 so now again, and again, you know, crypto people love to run with whatever narrative. So the first story that picked it up said, hey, it's a ban on staking. No one's allowed to stake in the US. If you stake in the US, they're going to throw you in jail. It's not true. It's not what it is. If you go read the filing, it's, it's very specific to the service offering that Kraken was doing. Um, that being said, though, the SEC is on a complete hunt out for blood for anyone that touches crypto, does anything with crypto, is involved with crypto. I, I, I do not know a single person that I work with or have worked with in the past that has not at least received an email from the SEC. They have gone cross-spectrum to everyone. If you're a builder, if you're a, a multi-sig user, if you're a DAO contributor, doesn't matter. They're going after you. Now, I, I think they're still feeling out what is within their capabilities to do. And, and, and they might be doing it as, an, as, an, as a learning 
exercise, as they always like to say, um, which, which is really just a friendly guise to basically say that, that you're kind of screwed and they're just waiting for you to say something wrong. Um, so, so, so I do think they're taking the wrong approach because what they're doing now is they're, they're, they're pushing more people into the anonymous culture, which is bad. Personally speaking, I don't think that is good. Now, there's an asterisk there. This does not mean that all anonymous people are bad, but anonymous culture allows bad people to infiltrate a lot easier. So, you know, those qualifications are important. People always think just because I say anonymous culture is bad, it means I hate the nonce. No, there are great nonce. Most of your contributors are nonce. I don't know who any of those guys are, but they're amazing. But unfortunately, that culture makes the barrier to entry for real scammers a lot lower. And that's a bad thing, for example. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think they're definitely chasing away most builders from, you know, doing anything in the U.S., and, 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 and I, at least my opinion is that this is an unstoppable force. They're not going to be able to stop crypto. So all they're going to do is they're going to chase away their users and, and, and you know, their builders and, and their cut of the pie, basically, which is going to mean that they're not going to be able to regulate any of it. And it means other people are going to make the choices. A big reason why the U.S. became so big is because they had such internet-friendly regulation when that started booming. And they allowed companies in that sector to really grow and to, to really have no limits in terms of what they do. Now they're trying to overregulate to the point where they're, 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 they're actively stopping innovation and they're actively stopping building. And all that's going to do, you know, that's just going to drive all of that value to, to places like Switzerland that has recently released that DLT act of theirs. That's fantastic. Um, um, UAE that has gotten a bunch of friendly rules for you know crypto companies those kind of things South Korea that has now said that you know they're they're open up to STOs on blockchain you know so that's that's just where it's going to end up going China also now opened itself up to to to, to developers again um, although they're they whipsaw between it's banned it's not banned it's banned it's not banned so so I don't think it's stable enough to choose there but so 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 that's why I think the current positioning is wrong and I think they are overreaching. And I think they are driving away their future potential of actually having a say in this industry by now trying to have too much of a say. I agree that that just like pushes developers to other jurisdictions, but the U.S. being so big, does that have the potential to still um, limit crypto's growth and adoption? Like if people in the U.S. are um, prevented from from accessing crypto in in is sent in the kind of the centralized on ramps because they're being overly regulated. Maybe there's like this big chunk of the population that won't access crypto. Like, what what does crypto look like if a U.S. user can't easily access it? So, so, so crypto and and again, this is a personal opinion, but I believe it is an unstoppable force. So, what I mean by that is, as the technology improves, as accessibility improves. You know, you're you're going to have existing incumbents, whether it be banks or clearing houses or 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 social media companies or streaming companies. It, it doesn't matter what it is, but their overheads in doing things in the legacy internet way is going to be so much more expensive than doing it in the decentralized blockchain way, and they are going to either get killed by you know, new disruptors that are going to come into the market that uses this technology, um, or they're going to adopt themselves. Now, now, the reason I say that is because then 
they're the ones that start pushing so hard for these regulations. So, so you know, I, I see what the U.S. is currently doing as a temporary chase of all of these people. Eventually, they are going to make friendly rules. Eventually, they are going to allow builders. Eventually, they are going to release frameworks and compliances that allow these builders. But by then, they're going to have lost so much say to be able to sit at the table and to be able to say what happens because they're going to have let you know European Union, UAE, Asian countries have so much more say in how it works and how it looks and how it operates. Um, but eventually they're going to cave. There's no two ways about it. So, so even, you know, if it might be two years, might be five years, might be ten years. It doesn't really matter on the scale of time. But, but, but eventually they, they get defeated by this. Yeah, that's an interesting take. It's like now all the banks that are lobbying against crypto will have to, you know, be forced to adopt it. And so they'll, they'll have to be pushing for crypto at some point. Yeah. So to start wrapping up, I want to get your your view on uh, on the state of DeFi uh, today. That's a, a huge topic, but you know you've you've been following kind of the the uh, development of decentralized finance uh, from its birth, really. So I'm interested to hear your your thoughts on um, you know where we're at. Like where what would you want to see? Do you think we're um, in 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 a you know, in a good place kind of development wise? Do you wish that there were uh, other applications that you you haven't seen uh, come up? Like what, what's your sense of uh, kind of the state of development in, in DeFi? Um, I, I recently actually released an article on this in my Medium as well, but, but, but that's more like just stat space to just show that, because a lot of people say that, that DeFi has seen a downtrend, but, but, but it actually hasn't. Like, like if you ignore sort of the, the mania that was caused by stuff like UST, et cetera, and, and you remove that off of the chart, and, and you just sort of chart interest rates and TVL and, and these kinds of metrics on, on a year-on-year -year scale, it's linear growth. So, so you know, by, by all metrics, we are growing better. Now, if you compare that to that, that, that Pico top mania that was crazy, um, and that was just over leveraged, double stacking the same stuff and all of these companies borrowing the same assets to each other 50 million times. Um, if, if you compare it to that, yes, we're down, obviously. Um, but if you just compare it to year on year where we were, the metrics are much better. Um, it's much more stable. Um, interest rates are still high, but they're less volatile, which is, you know, sh all of these signs are showing a maturing market, which is good. So that's one side of it. So that's great. Um, access to capital, I think, is something that has slowed down a little bit, but I do believe is going to grow as we saw more, more real world assets come into the game. You know, mortgages is a big story. Treasury bills is a big story. Um, Stocks, EFTs, all of these things are, are traditionally considered capital. You know, it's not cash, but it's still capital. It can be used as collateral or can be used to leverage or any of these kinds of stuff. And, and those, you know, I've, I've, I've worked with enough government agencies and regulators and companies and clearinghouses and all of these things over the last five years who all want to do this, but none of them 
have comfort in the regulation to do it. And even if they had comfort in the regulation to do it, they, their auditors that they use do not have the required skill set to be able to provide the services for the standard bookkeeping. And even if they do, then they don't have the technical expertise to do it. So, so real-world assets are going to be a narrative. It is going to happen, but it's only going to happen after first the regulatory side hits. And we're starting to see that, like mentioned, Switzerland, the DLT Act, UAE, VARA license, um, uh, South Korea, STOs. So, so, so that's already going to start allowing you know, tokenizing of real-world assets on-chain. But even then, you're not going to see it in scale until the traditional auditors these guys use have enough on-chain capability to be able to just draw that data into their existing reports so that they can stamp off and say, hey, this is good. And, and then it's the technological part. But the technological part is actually the easiest one to solve because like deploying a real-world asset on-chain is one of the easiest things to do in existence. Um, but, but when we see that, you'll see more capital coming in as well, which, which again is a good thing. Um, but, but, but that has a current blocker, and that's probably two to five years away, if, if I were to wager a guess. Um, and historically, I've been very bad on my timelines. I'm usually right on what happens, but I'm very, very wrong on when it happens. Um, so that's the one part. Then the other part is there, there are a few primitives that, that I think we're still lacking. Um, there's still a lot of work that can be done on futures, options, and perps that we're not seeing on-chain, that I have proposed a few primitives, which I'm sad to see that no one has adopted yet. Um, that's, that's, that's the one part in sort of the financial primitives. Then, you know, there's also more um, currencies for stablecoins, which starts allowing more um, cross-border settlement and these kinds of things. So, 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 so there is still a lot we need to see there that hasn't really happened yet. Um, but but less so on the on the on the DeFi side. The the DeFi side, I'd say, has got like seventy percent coverage of financial primitives. So 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 there's like a thirty percent gap there, and and that'll slowly get filled in over the next year. And insurance, another great example. You know, that's one of the biggest industries, but we don't really see representation of that on chain currently. Um, Gamblers don't like insurance. It's that simplistic. And right now, it's mostly gamblers. We, we, we don't have the risk-averse people yet. The risk-averse people, you know, they like um, insurance. But, but we've also hit a technological wall, and that's also important to understand. And, and what I mean by that is the blockchains don't have the feature set yet to be able to unlock the next iteration of apps. You know, this is just, if I take it again back to early internet, you know, you, you, you couldn't have had... Facebook, YouTube, any of the stuff that we have today on a 56k dial-up modem. The, the tech was just not good enough yet. It hit a technological wall. And when that wall got broken and we ended up with ISDN, ADSL, satellite, those kinds of things, all of a sudden, these new apps became possible. So, so blockchains need to play a little bit of catch-up now. And, you know, there's, there's a bunch of avenues. There's some L2 research, although I think that's mostly huff-puff. Um, there's some ZK stuff, which I also don't think we're really going to see much of fruition, at least not in the next five to 10 years. Um, and then there's some layer one improvements that, that the only real people that were working on that was really Avalanche Phantom and I'd say Solana, we're, we're doing good work on that. Uh, each one of those three have, you know, different sets of, of um, decentralization, but that's not what we have to go in now. But as those get unlocked, there's also that next element, which is, you know, the DAP developer access to tooling and being able to build easily. And because now, again, if I use that same internet analogy, you know, uh, 
web developers today, all you need is to know a language and then you click deploy on AWS and your code is hosted. You know, back then you needed to have a vast amount of experience in DevOps, running your own servers locally, being able to do reverse lookups on IP, registering that with your ISP, then being able to get that externally, then being able to actually link a DNS to that. All of that stuff's taken care of you nowadays, but back then you needed to know all of that stuff. Now we're still in that phase where there's that high barrier to entry for DEP developers. But for example, with all of the stuff we're doing at Phantom that removes those barriers, DEP developers can come in easier and then we can start seeing that next generation of apps. So, so I'd say that's sort of the three sort of buckets I think we're in currently. DeFi at about 70%, but there's some primitives missing. Um, real world assets, but there's a regulatory and an auditory blocker. And then the new wave of, of apps, just apps, not decentralized, just, just apps. Um, sorry, not de decentralized finance, just, you know, apps. Uh, and, and that has a technological wall that needs to be solved first. And for you, the, that tech wall is kind of scalability issue and uh, developer access? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a combination. It's, it's definitely a scalability issue. Um, you know, for, for a simple example is, is um, the, the Phantom Virtual Machine, right? That's, that's just an optimized Ethereum virtual machine. We just do things like introducing um, superset instructions. We remove the 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 current PebbleDB for for our own uh, BadgerDB I don't remember which one they use for our own native implementation and I mean just just these few small tweaks already gives us close to an eight times throughput of the current VM because because right now the biggest bottleneck isn't consensus anymore consensus has been solved there's enough ABT, ABFT solutions out there um, Avalanche Snowball Phantoms Lachesis that solve this problem. The, the bottleneck now is actually the virtual machine that can no longer keep up with the throughput. So that's the next thing that needs to be solved. To my knowledge, only Phantom is doing that currently. I don't think anyone is working on the virtual machine. Um, when that unlocks, you can start doing those. But you know, that's, that's just, that's, that's the pipeline. That, that's like you, 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 you no longer have the 56K modem, you now have fiber to your home. So that's great and that solves one problem but your other problem is still okay, but I still need to be able to just click the button and then my, my code that I wrote is deployed and hosted somewhere and runs. And you know, that's, that's, that, that's those other UX elements we're talking about, like the gas subsidies, account abstraction, gas monetization, all of those features that we're focusing on. Because that gets it to a point where the DAP developer, all they need to do is focus on their users. They no longer need to worry about the fact that it's on blockchain, that they need gas, that you know they they need these kinds of security audits because like we've 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 got active security monitoring on Phantom. So as soon as you deploy there, there's real time consistent security monitoring on your contracts, for example. So so it needs to get to that point where you know the developers no longer need to worry about all of that stuff. They just need to write the code, click deploy, and then attract users. And 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 they should also not need to you know, only have technical users. Their users should be able to be anyone that has a username and a password that can just start using the app. And, and that's that technology wall. So I'd say it's two parts. You know, it's that layer one scalability, which we're solving in X ways. And then it's app developer accessibility that we're solving in X ways. And then it's end user ease of accessibility for that app, which we're solving in X ways. Got it. Perfect. And then um, I know we're over time, but last question, if you can, um, about the, the bear and bull market. Uh, when do you think the, the bear will be over? Um, I, I, I don't know when it will be over. I hope it's not over soon. Um, it, is, it is a much more conducive environment to proper discourse 
to to real development to new projects it it gets rid of a lot of the very noisy competitors who claim they solve a lot of stuff and claim they've done a lot of stuff but in reality they don't have anything and and you quickly see that um I, I, I don't remember whose quote it was. I think it was Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger, but, but, but they said when, when the tide goes out, you see who's not wearing any clothes. Um, and, and I always thought that's you know, a great sort of analogy to these bear markets, because when that tide goes out, you quickly see who, who you know, is actually knows what they're doing and, and who has no clue. Um, if I had to wager a guess, you know, I'd probably say towards the end of this year, um, but it depends on so many factors. Like, like will will the Fed keep um, their interest rates nice and high, or will they buckle under you know consumer pressure or inflation or any of that kind of stuff? If they, if 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 Powell and those guys keep their rates high and stuff, and you know China supply chain stays stable and we we see some kind of resolution on the Ukraine Russia side or or, or a stalemate. Um, then, then I'd say we can start looking a little bit more optimistic towards the end of the year. Um, but I would definitely not take. Again, I'm not a trader, so you know it's very hard to for, for for me to to really give an estimation there. But that's just my 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 deduction from what I'm currently seeing on the global markets. Got it. But you're happy in the bear. So, so happy. And yeah, and I have to agree. Like just from kind of coverage perspective. Same thing, like it, it's good to not have so much fluff and so much noise. Um, so anyway, Andre, it's it was so great catching up. Thanks for taking the time. Really interesting conversation. And yeah, I hope to have you uh, again when, you know, uh, maybe the this tech wall was uh, was uh, broken and we can talk about that. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that should be around Q3 this year. So we can schedule right, another perfect. call for that. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye.